millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we are live. And wow. Just wow. I think that is something that is apt for this story. Don't you? Yes, I'm actually excited for this one because there's so many things to discuss really is interesting. Yeah, we initially were planning on doing this as just a, a single one-off episode, and then the more I was getting into the research of it, it just expanded, and to do it justice, we needed the whole two parts. So enjoy another two-parter. Yes, I hope you will. And as always, if you want to support the show, don't forget to recommend it to your friends, leave a comment, review, and we appreciate all of your support. Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast co-hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover thanks to his dear old dad and co-host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Double Agent Pujol, Part 1, Codenamed Alaric. nineteen forty one. Sitting across from the Nazi Obver agent in the Spanish cafe, Juan Pujol, soon to be codenamed Alaric, tells him he has an important document to show him, sliding a piece of paper out of his pocket and across to the agent beneath the table, making sure no one else in the cafe can see. A man of deep conviction, confidence, and determination, Juan Pujol's actions would later dub him by British intelligence as the greatest double agent of the Second World War. Reflecting on that time, Juan Pujol would later write, I yearned for justice. From the medley of tangled ideas and fantasies going around and around in my head, a plan slowly began to take shape. I must do something, something practical. I must make my contribution towards the good of humanity. And he certainly did. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, yes, he did. Yes. Very interesting uh, life story and very courageous. But let us see what it's, where it all started. Well, before we jump right into the history, I mean, the man's bravery is unbelievable. Did you know anything about him before? No, nope, not really. No. Not really or no? No, not really. No. <laughs> but some of the things that he was involved with, I think you may have heard of. I might have. Just a, a general question. When you are studying espionage and all that, when they train you, do they reference other agents' activities? Not necessarily, no. So you don't learn from the no. successes or mistakes of other agents necessarily? No, only from mistakes of our people. Of your own people. I see. I see. All right. Well, I suppose we should begin. We should. And we begin at the beginning on February 14th, 1912, where Juan Pujol was born in Barcelona. His father, a Catalan, who owned a cotton factory, and his mother, an Andalusian. Pujol was three of four children, and at seven, he was sent to a boarding school for four years. He was only allowed out on Sundays if he had a visitor, and his father would make the 20-mile trip weekly to visit him. How's that for fatherly dedication, Dad? Well, in those days, I suppose, if you wanted a good education, and that was the way to do it. Families who send their children off and don't take care of them. Maybe that's what I should have done with you. Maybe I should have taken... Actually, I did, didn't I? Yeah, you yes. sent me off to different places. Yes, I did. Except you came with. Sort of. Uh, sort of. But you did visit as well. Thank you. 
his mother came from a strict Roman Catholic family, his father more secular and liberal. And at 13, Pujol was transferred to a school in Barcelona. He was there three years until he had an argument with his teacher, Pujol deciding that school was no longer for him, and he became an apprentice at a hardware store. Later, he would take on a variety of jobs and studied animal husbandry at the Royal Poultry School, managing various businesses in between, such as the cinema. But essentially, he was on a path to become a chicken farmer. Great material for a spy. Yes, um, not exactly who you'd assume to be a spy at no. this point, no. Chicken handler, okay. In 1931, his father died a few months after the Second Republic's establishment. That was in Spain when they deposed of uh, yes. King Alfonso XIII. It was at this time that Pujol completed his education as a poultry farmer, and thankfully his father had left the family well off and well provided for, so there were no issues. That same year, in 1931, Pujol served his six months compulsory military service in the 7th Regiment Artillery Cavalry Unit. He hated horseback riding and claimed to lack essential qualities of loyalty, generosity, and honor, which I think uh, we'll find later to be not exactly true, but it's funny what he thought of himself at the time. What he did know was that military life was not for him, and he joined under a fee-paying military service scheme where he could spend his nights at home, and if he completed the necessary training and studied hard during those six months, he was allowed to graduate with a star as a second lieutenant. So he came from a slightly privileged background, not overly privileged, but a family, middle-class family type of thing. But you, you see already he was very confident of his abilities. That's, and he had his own thoughts and own way of doing things. That was, even from an early age, that's what he did. Yeah, you saw that also with the school of uh, yes. arguing, eh, school's no longer for me, I have my own path. Yes. He was a person who definitely went their own way. He went his way. Yeah, their own way. Their own way. I thought you said the wrong way. No, no their own way. Ah, their own way. Okay. The wrong way. I don't know. That's what I heard. I, my ear's not as get, good get as Get your hearing thing. checked. Thank you. What did you say? Then, in 1936, the Spanish Civil War broke out. The Republicans versus the Nationalists. Pujol managing a poultry farm in the north of Barcelona at the time. At that same time, his sister's fiancé was taken by Republican forces. And later, she and their mother were arrested on charges of being counter-revolutionaries. Thankfully, a relative in a trade union was able to rescue them from captivity. But what couldn't be saved was Pujol's father's factory, which was taken over by workers in the early stages of the Spanish Civil War. At the same time, Pujol was called for military service on the Republican side, the side opposing Franco's nationalists. But he hid in his girlfriend's home, trying to avoid being drafted. That worked about as well as you'd expect, and later he was captured in a police raid and imprisoned for one week. But good luck was on his side because he was freed by a resistance group, which hit him until fake identity papers could be forged, which showed that he was too old for military service. So already we're seeing the flexibility of getting around certain situations that's developed for him. And fake papers, his love for fake papers. The effectiveness of yes. faking things. Yes. Yes. He started managing a poultry farm requisitioned by the local Republican government, but the Socialist Committee rule and management failed. Uh, the flawed communist ideology not being exactly the most efficient in running a, a farm, and so he was quite disheartened by that. To add further difficulties, the country was in a bad situation, and his life not much better. So Pujol came up with a plan. He decided to rejoin the Republican military with his fake papers, with the plan to desert as soon as possible. And so he volunteered to lay telegraph cables near the front line as a way to get close to it. Then he deserted to the Nationalist Army in September of 1938 during the Battle of Ebro. Already we're seeing the schemes and the planning and the plotting. I mean, it's just crazy. And Spain was fighting amongst itself in this civil war. It was difficult to maneuver, and he realized that he had to get into a better situation. And the way to do that was to get to the front, to the other side. But the only way to do that was joining the army, and so he found this crazy way. Yes, the, his ability to change sides is, is quite remarkable, and to play the game on both sides. I think that was the, the essence, and that was the beginning of his... Uh, of his thinking of how he can play both sides. It, it's interesting how he did it in even in those early stages. There's this insane escape where he's climbing out of the trenches and running up hills and all this stuff, but uh, that's for a war movie, not a spy movie. Things on the nationalist side, however, were just as bad as on the Republican side. 
And Pujol really disliked the fascist influences that he was seeing on the nationalist side. In fact, Pujol was even struck by and imprisoned by his colonel for expressing sympathy with the monarchy, and he was interrogated over his actions and his desertion. Natural, you could say. Of course, he came up with all sorts of excuses, but what helped him the most was that he got very, very sick and was sent to hospital, where he wrote to his contacts, who were eventually able to smooth things over with the nationalist side and vouch for him. Again, his family, being from middle class, had certain connections, different things. Eventually, his rank was restored, his initial, original rank, as the war ended with Franco's nationalist victory and the fall of Madrid. The whole experience of the Spanish Civil War soured Pujol on communism and fascism, the two sides of the Spanish Civil War, which later would come to represent the Nazis and the Soviet Union. During the war, he served on both sides, but managed to get through it without firing a single shot. Quite remarkable. Yes. Discharged from the Nationalist Army at the end of the war, he soon met his wife, Aretheli Gonzalez, and married her in Madrid, having a child. But the situation not looking good in Spain, Pujol wanted to leave, and so he managed to obtain a Spanish diplomatic passport for travel to Portugal. Now, passports were hard to come by, but Pujol was working in a hotel at the time, and there he met a Spanish duke who complained that two ladies that he called aunts were unable to find scotch during the war. Now, Pujol knew that he could obtain scotch in Portugal, so he struck a deal with the duke. Get four passports, and he'll help them. Because, of course, he assumed, and rightfully so, that the Duke had connections and the ability to do so. Pujol writing, And this is how I managed to lay my hands on a document which at the time was nearly impossible to obtain. Even if the new passport was only valid for Portugal, it had great possibilities for the future. With four of these documents, we left for Portugal in their car, with me acting as a chauffeur, bought whiskey, and when we returned, the custom police didn't even search the car. Pujol got the passport for six bottles of scotch. Now, passports at the time were easier to get than exit visas abroad, so Pujol was still stuck. And at the same time, the Nazis invaded Poland. Why was he able to travel but not get an exit visa? So you could do tourism, he could go for a certain amount of time, but he couldn't officially leave, so. Wow, already coming up with these schemes and creative solutions to these different things. Thoughts? I think he realized he can. He has a way of getting things done, relying on himself and his contacts, and believing that he can. The things will work out for him in the end, and I think that that played out for him. I mean, it certainly he had that experience in the war where yeah. he was able to maneuver and things worked out for him in the end. Yes. And yeah, I suppose your experiences inform what your decisions are in the future. If you've had a bunch of success, you'll assume that you'll get those successes again. You'll so land he, on your feet. That's what he, he trusted his abilities. And at Spain, there was a certain flexibility at the time and maneuverability. It wasn't quite as bureaucratic as, as Britain or Germany, you know, so the Mediterranean culture is a little bit more lax on these things. Well, let's see what happens. As World War II broke out, Spain remained neutral, but it was swarming with agents from both sides, the Nazis freely operating. Because even though it was neutral, Franco kind of leaned a little bit more towards being friendly to the Nazis. Certainly in the beginning, when it seemed like they were going to win straight out, very quickly. In 1940, Pujol felt he must fight against the German Nazis, writing, My humanist convictions would not allow me to turn a blind eye to the enormous suffering that was being unleashed by this psychopath, Hitler. January 1941, he approached the British Embassy in Madrid eventually doing so three times, along with his wife, Aretheli. But the British showed no interest in employing a chicken farmer as a spy. He was persistent, though, trying and trying again, trying to offer his services. But no, no dice. Why not? Why do you think? Well, for, for a number of reasons. First of all, interesting he went with his wife. That means you're dealing with two people. Well, it's unclear exactly who went when and how. But even you know, though, of the times, maybe she went first, then he went. But as we see as well as we go along, his wife had a very important role to play in, in what Certainly he did. in the beginning, yes. So it's always two people. It's always something. It's a bit more tricky. How but come? that's not the main thing, okay? Why is it trickier with two? Because it means you have to trust two people and one knows more than the other and then one can betray the other. And it's always... It's, it, you're running two people and not one person. 
you never know, and it's and, and in a marriage things can not always work out, and then you have a trouble, you have trouble. So, but that wasn't the main reason. The main reason, he, what was he? He was a, he knew how to handle chickens. Well, I mean, he was a, an officer who had served in the in the military. Yeah, but like the, like he had a bunch were, of odd jobs. Well, if you look at it from, I, I would say from a different angle. One, he had nothing to prove that he was worthy, that he can give him any in, good information. But the second thing is, was he sent by someone to fool them? Meaning, was he a real guy? Was and he a mole, you mean? Was he run by someone else or was someone else mm -hmm. told him to go there? Now, What, the chickens? The, no, the chickens, obviously, they wanted to plan a coup and that's what right. they sent him. A coup. <laughs> a coup, coup. But that's not the case. No, if you you have a volunteer who comes into your embassy, one, you want to know if he's, if he's sent by someone else, if he's genuine. And the second thing as well, or third thing is, is he worthwhile if you can do something with him? At that point, at that time, they didn't think that he had something to offer. Well, he had and no he came with his credentials, wife. right? No, he had, he had nothing. From their point of view, for what they wanted, he had nothing to offer them. No contacts, uh, no connections no, to certain nothing. areas. He, so even if to, he could speak with the right people. He had nothing to offer them. So you're saying if uh, if you were in the field and someone approached you somehow, whatever, saying, I want to help you, I want to help you, I can help, whatever you need, I'll help. You don't take the help because sometimes it's not worth it. I'm saying if the it's a time of war and someone comes in, you're always suspicious, number one. Number two, it's not coming alone or he's coming three times already. And three, he has no assets that he's bringing to the table that I can you can immediately use. So now, let's, if you yeah. if you have time, you cultivate him. You say, okay, let's train him. Let's do something with him. Let's. But you have to have someone with imagination. You have to have someone who's willing to take him under your wing, under his wing, and do something with him. But he comes with nothing. When you have, let's say, if they had ten of those a day that come in, who are they going to take? Someone who's uh, has no connections, no contacts, or someone else that maybe could be more useful, like right. a German, or sure. like a someone from. Uh, uh, an immigrant who's coming from somewhere else or has right. connections. At the time, the people that were he was meeting, they didn't think that he's worthwhile wasting time on. Did and they this didn't. have maybe something to do also with British outlook on who they hired? No. Class and stuff? No. No? No. to do with that? No. Okay. I, I, it's just on merit. He had nothing to offer at the time. He knew it. So posing a different thing, just to get a full picture here. Our last episode was on Coco Chanel. Right. So let's say Coco Chanel walked in to the British embassy and said she wanted to help. That would be more interesting, right? Because yes. now you have someone who has, especially if you already knew that she was in the Ritz schmoozing with, uh, with, the, with the German with the Nazis. Uh, Gestapo, yes. Then you say, okay, let's deal with it. Then they'll decide, okay, is she sent or not sent by someone, but she's someone with value. What does he have to offer? Mm -hmm. What does he have to offer for them that they can say, okay, we put him on a salary, we want to pay him. We want to now. You're limited in your resources. So what are, what are you going to do with him? You have to meet him. You have to work with him. Who's going to do it? Why? Right. It's not in Germany that he's in Germany. He's in, in in Spain. What's what's he going to talk about? About Spain? Not interesting at this point. Portugal? They don't need anything. Why why would they waste time on him at this stage? Sure. And so Pujol took matters into his own hands he would become something that would be useful for the British. Aha. Uh -huh. He would become a German agent and then approach the British again to offer his services as a double agent. Now that makes sense. In a twisted kind of way. Yes. I don't think many people set out to be double agents. No, that's not how you do it. Usually. Right. You get caught and then you get yourself, then you double yourself. And then you get turned, basically. Yes. Now, some versions of the story say that it was Aretheli's idea, but whosever idea it was, they obviously discussed it together and came up with this plan. Pujol, of course, having already served on both sides in military and in conflict, may have had the initial idea of, of it and discussed it with Aretheli. Regardless, he set about studying Nazi doctrines, creating an identity of a pro-Nazi fanatic working as an official in the Spanish government who had travel access to London for official business. So he created this whole fictitious character that he thought would be the juiciest thing ever to entice the Germans. Well, you could say that he learned from trying to get to the Brits that you have to come with something that will make them want you. 
If sure. you just come and say, I want to work with you, they're not going to look at you. You have to come with something that makes it interesting. Mm -hmm. When he went, I can imagine, he went to an, to an interview and he said, okay, yes, who are you? Yes, what can you offer us? Yes, what do you think you can do? I want to work for you, yes. He what may have asset? come with a dozen eggs as an offering. Well, maybe, but it could have been very useful at the time if you needed eggs. Yeah. But apparently that's not what they needed. So he understood. Spy, spy chickens? I mean, who knows? We've had spy cats. <laughs> you're, you're, you're Okay. If you say so, uh, we so he realized he has to come with something as a bait for them to want to work with him. He didn't know if it would work, but he said, "Let's try." And what did he do? So he contacted the German embassy, asking to speak to the military attaché to offer his services. He was told to call the next day, and next day he called once again, greeted to the same voice, and he was told to meet a fair-haired gentleman with blue eyes wearing a light suit and with a raincoat over his arm in the back of a cafe the next day in the afternoon. Okay, what does that mean to you? Why he gave that particular description? No. Why do you think they decided not to meet him? Officially. Officially. It's safer, obviously. It's always safer to not meet officially. You don't know what's going to happen. So if, you're, if, if they think the guy's worthy, then they say to themselves, okay, maybe someone's looking at the embassy. Maybe someone is looking to see what they're doing. So they decided at that stage that this guy that who's came to them could be interesting for them. So let's meet him outside. At the same time, if he was a plant, let's say, and they offered him to come into their embassy, he could have maybe been bringing a listening device and planted it or something. Well, There's more dangers. No? Yes and no. I, I, I wouldn't go that way. I would. It's, it's too early yet and... Maybe, no, I wouldn't, it's too sophisticated to think it that way at this stage. And that's maybe. But in this case, the person, and there could be another reason, the person they wanted him to meet, they didn't want him to come into the office. Also, because that person... Because they wanted him to wander around without being identified as a German intelligence officer. So to agent. see him, therefore to decide to see him, it should be outside. We don't know if he saw him after they checked him or didn't check him, but we know that he met him outside. So for two reasons they did it. One, because they thought maybe he's an asset. And two, the person they wanted him to see was better for them that he doesn't go into the embassy or official place. Therefore, it allows him to do more work outside without being have immediately been spotted as a official. I like the description as well. Meet a fair-haired gentleman with blue eyes wearing a light suit and with a raincoat over the back of his arm in the back of a cafe. Very. Well, just like they didn't say with a German newspaper. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't a German newspaper. Yeah. It was a farming newspaper about chickens. Really? Yeah, maybe. You and your chickens. And so Pujol met with a man calling himself Federico. Friedrich Knappe Ratte. Pujol offering to work for the Germans in their embassy and do whatever they wanted. He said he had access to people with information. Pujol writing, At first, I seemed to be holding the man's attention. But after a while, it dawned on me that I wasn't making such a good impression on him as I had first imagined. So he came with an approach different than the British. He had something to offer. Look at me, I have connections, I have this, I have that. And he seemed to be going well, but then he felt it didn't. Thoughts? It was interesting. He was able to feel, that's what he's saying now, at least when he wrote his memories or whatever he wrote, that he felt at a certain point that it wasn't enough. And that's very good because it means the, the guy has a capability to not only to, to say things, but as well to look at the other side and feel if he's listening. Right. Or his, and, to know, and change his story the moment he needs to. And, and, and what happened? Well, he'd got a second meeting, so that's something. Yes. You know, and it could also be the German side that they didn't want to show over enthusiasm as well. You, know, you have to play your cards at distance okay. and everything, right? On the second meeting... It went much better. It was less tense. Federico telling Pujo clearly that they were not interested in his propositions to help them, but that they only wanted material for the Abwehr, German intelligence. Pujo saying that he had a passport, and if they could just get him a job as a foreign correspondent, he could travel to Britain and obtain info for them. Federico liked the idea, saying he would get back to him. So this is an idea that he just came up with relatively on the fly. He knew the Germans were interested about what was going on in England. 
they're really, really not interested in any local stuff. But also, he wanted to get to England. I mean, that was his whole desire. Yes, as well. but but that wasn't the selling point. Mm-hmm. What made the difference was is he his ability to travel and go somewhere else, and that he wasn't German. And again, he was Spaniard, Catalonian, Catalonian, but Spaniard. That means he was neutral, not necessarily on one side or the other side. Therefore, could go th- could be trusted, and the other hand, not a sympathizer. Now, I want to talk about journalists as agents, because it's interesting that he said, be a journalist. You know, we've seen this cover story before with Virginia Hall, for instance, where she was planted in France as a journalist and as correspondence. Is this a common thing? I mean, I suppose journalists have access. Journalists want information and want to sell a story. So obviously, it's a good cover if you want to get get information. information. The other hand, you immediately thought of as a spy. So... You're under surveillance, you're going to be looked at, you're not 100% trusted. This has its pros and cons. And there isn't an, an agreement, you could say, a gentleman's agreement that you don't go as a journalist because it, to save the journalist industry from so-called being... Targeted. Targeted, or as as uh, every, every journalist is a spy. So so you, you just assume that all the attaches are, are spies instead? No, being a journalist... Those days was different. You could travel, you could move around. It, it was a different Yeah, of course, way of everyone today, things. anyone with a cell phone is a journalist. It's yeah, a little bit different. Today it's different, completely different. But in, yeah. in the Second World War, you could be a correspondent without actually being a correspondent. You could say you belong to a paper, but that the paper doesn't really know. You can't check on you. So it, it was a good cover that, yes, I'm working and I'm selling articles to papers and I'm writing for something. And how could they verify it? Right. You know, it's not like I'm working for... A, for a local newspaper and you can pick up the phone and say, I want to talk to him. Say, yeah, I I do something. So at the time, I think it was a very good way to get information and to travel. Today, well, uh, you know, even today you have an American journalist in uh, Russia accused of being a spy. The work you do can always bring you to that understanding or that conclusion that what you're doing is is intelligent work. But actually it's, it's just pure journalist work and it so happens they have the same kind of need to get information so if they want to accuse you they can accuse you and then there's you can't defend yourself like this american guy i don't remember his name at the moment who apparently is just held there and is not a spy at the same time as contacting the obver pujol wished for better opportunities for his family and he managed to get his hands on an exit visa for portugal by claiming inventing that his father had left money in a deposit box in Portugal. Now, Spain at the time was desperate for funds, so they approved his exit visa, and Pujol left. Again, he's just lying to get what he what he needs. I mean, this guy could have been the greatest con artist in the world, and he was in, in, in some senses, but uh, for good, right? Yes. Amazing. He was a great storyteller. Amazing. And they, and they bought it. I mean, Spain buying this idea, just making it up. He understood what people needed to hear, and he gave them that. It's incredible. When he arrived in Portugal, he registered with the Spanish consulate as a resident abroad, which then classified him as a Lisbon resident. So he no longer needed to apply for an exit visa. Once there, Pujol thought it would be easier to get a visa to England and Portugal so that he could show Federico. But he had no success trying and trying with contacts, but getting nowhere. Then, a stroke of luck occurred. Pujol was introduced to a fellow Spaniard, Jamie, with a diplomatic visa that allowed him to leave. And so, Pujol got to work. Instantly making friends with Jamie, of course, Pujol was very good at that, he accompanied Jamie to cafes and restaurants for weeks. Then, he made his move at a local casino, writing, We not only shared the same room at the hotel, but we each put 10,000 esquidos into a common purse to gamble with and agreed to split our gains and losses. One afternoon, while we were gambling at the casino, I began to complain of abdominal cramps and told Jamie that I'd have to go back to the hotel. I suggested he continue to play as we seemed to be on a winning streak. Once back at the hotel, I quickly photographed his diplomatic visa and then returned to the casino. What do you think of his plan? Losing money in the casino? Great, great, yeah. Yes. No, I mean, seriously, well, he, he did this all on his own initiative. Yes. yes, he was very imaginative and very very uh, courageous in what he tried to do. 
I mean, what other precautions or considerations would he would he have made to to pull this off? None. He just made sure they had enough money there. <laughs> Later, Pujol visited shops in Lisbon and had two enlargements made of the photograph of the diplomatic visa. Then he cut off the Spanish coat of arms off of one enlargement. He then took it to a firm of engravers and asked them to make a plate. Armed with the plate and the other enlargement, he went to an old printing works and posed as someone from the Spanish staff, giving the plate and the enlargement and ordering 200 copies to be made. Then he went elsewhere to order an identical rubber stamp to the one visible in the enlargement, creating a forged document people would have killed for. Not just one, but 200 of them. It was not clear to me if there was a picture on, on the document or was just a, just it was a document with the name. You don't have to have the answer, but he obviously, when you took, I assume it, it might have had a picture, but it doesn't say anything, but he would have had a name saying, bearer of this name is allowed to travel and do whatever and ever. And uh, he probably made sure that the document would be empty. Well, he enlarged, he, he enlarged it and then just cut off the, the stamp itself, the coat of arms. And then he took it to the engraver to make the plate and all this kind of stuff. So, so he, he actually he did made workarounds. So actually, he made a completely new document that actually wasn't really look. It wasn't. It was complete forged. Completely forged. Yes. Yeah. And the fact is, as I think as you mentioned, he went to different places that they can't put together the whole thing, and that's the right thing to do. You don't want to be. You don't want someone to have the whole picture. Right. Did a little bit here, a little yeah, bit there. That's, that's what you do. And he didn't order just one because that would be suspicious. Right. But so as if as if the embassy needs yeah these documents exactly. Clever, very very clever. Two hundred uh, creative thinking and self starter. These are these are traits we often discussed as important for. Well, he knew what in those days documents were not computerized. So yes, obviously, as well. and every the, these printers were all over the place. It wasn't like there's one printer in town and that's it. So it was uh, easier to do. Yeah. Pujol was not sure how he would use all 200 copies, so he got rid of most of them, keeping only 10 to 20. Easier to smuggle them back into Spain that way, to meet with Federico. Then, by chance, he got a call from the Spanish consulate. What influential people have you been stirring up, Signor Pujol? He received an approval for an exit visa to Europe and other countries via his contacts. Another stroke of luck. He got the real deal after he'd gone through all that work. Yep. Helpful to have contacts. Very helpful. Nonetheless, he still held on to the 10 to 20 fakes that he had, writing, As the popular saying has it, a mouse is lost if he only has one means of escape, for if he fails to reach it, that's the end. I think that sums up his whole worldview. Yes. Always, always having lots of different means of escape and yes. plans and things going on. Correct. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Returning to Madrid, he contacted Federico, arranged to meet, and invented a story about going to Portugal, but mixed in things that were truthful, such as gaining residency in Lisbon. However, he still needed a motive for being in Britain, a job. 
saying it would be easy for him to get there since he now had the valid documents. Federico bought all the stories, saying he needed to think about how to proceed, and they continued to meet. But eventually it became clear that it was going to be difficult to make Pujol a correspondent in Britain because all the places were already filled with correspondence. And Pujol, of course, didn't have credentials as a correspondent. Right. Pujol writing, More meetings followed. I think I visited more cafes at this time than during the whole of the rest of my life. He was becoming increasingly interested and spent hours advising and training me. After a month, however, it was clear that I was the one making the running. What do you make of that? Uh, coffees, first of all, that's I can understand that going to coffee places, that's where you meet. He's not going to go into somewhere official. You hate cafes. Why do you hate cafes? <laughs> I don't hate cafes. I just don't like them. You just don't like coffee. <laughs> I don't go into my... I don't want to go to talk about that aspect of it because it's not related to the gentleman. Well, he felt he was gaining control. He was gaining momentum and he was starting to call the shots a little bit more. The Germans were obviously interested in him, but he was probably finding, coming up with the solutions because he was more imaginative and he had more ideas of where he wanted to take More it. ambition to do it as well. And yes, but obviously you could say that the Germans as well had their own ideas and he needed the backing of his headquarters so he he couldn't make the decisions on the spot and that's as well one of the things that you see in intelligence situations where sometimes the decisions are not made immediately because the person you're meeting can't really make the decision mm -hmm. so it's always you need another meeting and another meeting because you need the approval for some of the things that are mentioned especially in this delicate situation does it happen when an asset becomes the one calling the shots uh, it shouldn't it shouldn't, but no. does it? What do you do about it if it does? Calling the shots doesn't mean that the asset doesn't doesn't have any ideas that you can take. So I, w I would leave it at that. What do you look for in a meeting spot? Because they were obviously going to different cafes. It wasn't always the same cafe. Again, this is in Madrid. Both of them live there. Both of them are known. But do you want to be known to know each other? That's one question you always ask yourself. So the places you sit, you're going to sit outside where everybody can see you? Probably the wrong thing to do. The only places could maybe offer it would be, in those days, maybe big coffee shops that have places inside the coffee shop, not outside. Cafes or and you hotel go, lobbies. Or hotel lobbies. So that's where you're going to sit and meet. Now, if you, you have to have, obviously, they probably had a, a cover story or some reason why they were meeting. Because otherwise, if someone asks any questions, oh, I saw you meet with this German guy, or... Mm -hmm. What are you meeting this guy? There should be a story behind it. Right. But we don't know what was said on that. And that's why you also alternate your, your places that you're meeting, not always yes. the same place. Yes. And there's some cities that are known to have lots of coffees. And you can be in 100 coffees in a month as they went in a month and not go into the same place. And I think Madrid will be the case. What's the strangest place you've ever had a, a meeting? I don't remember now, but there are plenty of interesting places not going to give us any little tidbit any any little gem uh no 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 <laughs> <laughs> all right you keep your secrets eager to speed things up pujol eventually told federico that he had an important document to show him sliding a piece of paper out of his pocket and pushing it towards federico under the table federico quickly glancing before pujol folded it back up into his pocket what Pujol showed him was documentation that he had printed in Lisbon, now filled with his name, and giving Pujol a diplomatic assignment to travel to London on a special mission for the commercial attaché's administrative department. Pujol inventing this story and asking Federico to keep his mission a secret as it was confidential and the government did not want anyone else involved. Pujol saying he expected to leave in about 10 days' time. Federico was sold. A few weeks later, he supplied Pujol with a bottle of invisible ink, secret codes, $3,000, a lot at the time, yes. and briefed him on the kinds of reports that the Avver expected Pujol to send back. Pujol officially becoming Agent Alaric, instructed to go to Britain and recruit a network. Now, he didn't immediately go to the British Embassy in Spain because he feared he'd see someone he knew. There were many Spaniards working there, maybe moles. And he couldn't actually go to England on the papers that he showed Federico because they were fake. It was a fake assignment. Instead, in July of 1941, Pujol traveled back to Lisbon, and he moved from accommodation to accommodation a number of times to make it more difficult to be traced. 
We have to remember that Lisbon at this time was a nest of spies and those seeking to escape. It was neutral, just like Spain, and Portugal, unlike Spain, was closer to England, and so it had a lot more of espionage activity and all that kind of stuff. And and Portugal was supposedly allied with the Allies, but anyway, it was a hotbed of agents, let's just put it like that. So you had to be careful where you stepped. But you see as well that he is very conscious about his security. He wasn't necessarily trained on that angle, on that aspect, but he decided that there are certain things you have to do to protect himself. Well, this and comes from his experience it. in the war as well, yes. switching sides and people yes. looking for him and hiding out and fake right. papers. So he had the training, not through training, but through his life experiences. Correct. Again, Pujol tried the British embassy in Portugal, now having technically already become a German agent. And yet he still couldn't reach anyone he felt he could trust, even with what he had, writing, I just could not understand why the British were so difficult when the Germans were so understanding and cooperative. Why, I kept on asking myself, was the enemy proving to be so helpful while those whom I wanted to be my friends were being so implacable? Why? Why now, when he has this thing, he can offer them? I'm an agent. I have something to offer. Why? Well, again, they thought, is he for real? The only thing he can offer at this stage is that he is in contact with the German intelligence. Now, I suppose he said that to them. Well, Why didn't they pick he, up on he it? He says that he didn't have anyone at the embassy that he could trust. So he presumably didn't even have a meeting with anyone higher up. He didn't want to give the information. If he would some... have said that, I think he would have been treated differently. What do you mean? That he had a mission with the German intelligence. But I don't think, he, as you said, I don't think he had the contacts in Portugal to say that. He didn't trust anyone at that stage. If you go to the British embassy and the bureaucracy puts you in front of some no, depends, secretary or clerk. Uh, well, you know. de depends on, well, he knew very well, in, he did it in, in Madrid. And he didn't want to mention Madrid because they'll, if they want to look him up, say, okay, this is a scum on selling us stories. Why should we trust him? He comes up with stories again. He couldn't show them the document because it knows, he knew it was a forgery. So he didn't, really be, didn't want to get caught. And uh, again, it wasn't enough. Because maybe because of being Portugal being Portugal, they had walk-ins like that all the time, people saying they want to work or did work or do something. It was also now, an exit point, people wanting to leave. So. Exactly. So who knows what happened there, but apparently it wasn't. Well, they were not interested. So when people can't help and want to, what do they do? What's the most effective way of making one known to an intelligence organization with the desire to help them? If someone tells you they don't want you, then understand they don't want you. So but you if, have to come if with... If he would have done that, then... Yes, but he had to do something extraordinary so that he could be noticed by the British. And at that time, they probably had many assets and many walk-ins, and he was just another one that came in that day, and they just said, okay. And probably wasn't maybe a huge station, and there was a lot of other work, and there were a lot of more important things to do, and I'm sure they were. And they just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, this is also the beginning of the war. The the British are being pushed back. Right, you know, you know there are other chaos, things. Chaos, Dunkirk, evacuation. And maybe they were more interested in saving lives and getting uh, their people out and all sorts of stuff like that. And the person there wasn't interested. Is it the same today? Is it so Look, well, hard to make Another thing is the guy there probably was an MI6 guy. So they're looking at intelligence getting from the Germans and not intelligence to prevent from the Germans from getting. So it wasn't like an MI5, okay, this is something that's trying to stop espionage. So they're looking at it as, well, what can it be good for the service? Can I send him into Germany? No, this guy does want to go into Germany. So it's, it's a different approach. Right. But you could still, even if you're looking at it from an MI6 or an SOE at the time yeah. um, perspective, you could still turn a person, right? Yes, but... They're thinking about it in a different way. At that time, trained. it was a different different times, and right. we don't know what was going on in that embassy. Is it still today so hard to make contact to help? No, it's not hard. It's just a matter of uh, what organization and what what they're looking for and what you have on to offer. So, for all the listeners out there who want to help an intelligence community, Dad, tell us the best way to contact an intelligence community or make yourself known to be someone that wants to help. I just answered you. Be useful and have something to sell. No, I'm saying I don't want to go in. Like, it's just like it's not an ad for, for volunteering to be a, an agent. It's not an employment service. We want people just walking in and I want to help you. It doesn't work that way. 
But if someone does genuinely want to help, what can someone do? Okay, there's uh, websites these days and you can apply and then see what happens. So websites. Yes. Don't just show up at embassies saying you, you want to help, even today. If you're in your own country, you're not going to go into a foreign embassy. If you're outside of your country and you want to help, what's the reason you want to help? If you're a foreign national who wants to help another country, you don't do it in the country that you want to go against. Every country and every place is a different story. You never know who you can trust and you never know who you can work with. So it hasn't changed. Basically, come with something useful, some yeah. credential. It's not only that. It's not only the approach. It's as well if there's another side looking to see who's approaching. Because even if you might be someone interested, if you come into an embassy that we know that everybody's monitoring it, even if he's a great guy, you probably can't use him. He's, he's, he's compromised. He's compromised. Mm -hmm. So so British embassy in Moscow, some Moscovite comes and says he wants to help. Compromise, because obviously you know the, the Russians are watching it. Correct. You don't do it because if you go there, you're going to probably be on someone's watch list. And therefore, as an intelligence organization, you're compromising before you start. So how will you do it? You find other ways to send messages in. How? We'll talk about it in a different time. <laughs> All right, you keep your secrets. Everybody has a secrets to keep. Mm -hmm. As usual, Pujol took matters into his own hands. I was determined not to give up, but to continue my bizarre form of espionage on my own. Perhaps things would eventually change for the better. So he bought a tourist's guide to Britain, a book on the British Navy, a railway timetable, and a large map of Great Britain as well as watched newsreel reports in the cinema. Arathili also joining in, as together, they started creating fake reports that seemed credible as if they were coming from London. And in October of 1941, Pujol sent his first report. In it, he claimed to be traveling around Britain and submitted travel expenses based on fares listed in the train guide. The currency was a bit of a challenge for Pujol to add up, so he itemized everything, saying that he'd total them later. At the time, in Great Britain, they used pounds, shillings, farthings, pence, all these funny different, it was like 10, 12 shillings to a pound and four pounds to a whatever, and it was quite confusing, right? No, not, not to someone who lived there at the time. Yes, but to other people, it was a other bit people of a strange... Other people, yes. A bit of a strange uh, currency thing. Now, obviously, he couldn't mail his letters from the UK, right? Right. So what did he do? He came up with a genius plan. Oh, did he? Yes. You're right. He came up with a genius plan. He made up a story that he had contacted a KLM pilot and made him one of his agents. This KLM pilot would fly Pujo's letters across the channel and drop them into a Portuguese mailbox. Pujo saying that at first the pilot was reluctant, but Pujo explained that his letters wouldn't be sealed so the pilot could look them over if he desired. He also told his German handlers that this way he would also avoid British censors. I mean, it's genius. It is. It really is genius. Because even if he was in the UK, it's a genius idea to get someone like that to deliver your letters. When I was uh, looking at what you're talking about and looking into it, I wondered how they made contact with him. Well, they put it in the post box as well, and the, the KLM guy got it. How will he get it? They sent it, you think, to an address in... Yeah. In, in, that's what, that's what, what yeah, you read? Yeah, it's a post box that was given that they would send things to, and then the KLM guy would put it in the post box, and theoretically the KLM guy would be delivering it back to the Pujol. Was the and that's idea. what you thought they did? We don't know. Until a later stage, yeah. Is that what they did? As far as I understand, there was a post box that was communicated to by the Germans and by Pujol. That they sent him information through them, yes. through that post box. Which then Pujol claimed was sent to him through this KLM guy. Okay. I was wondering about it because it was like a one-way communication as far as I could see. Well, there was... Because there was they thought he was in London. Okay, how's he getting this stuff? There was going to be always a delay. Right. And so he told them probably, you know, send to this post box and my guy will pick it up. Okay. Probably. All right. That's probably the right way to do. Now, his first letter on the surface was written in ordinary ink, an enthusiastic account of England by a passionate Catalonian Democrat. And he probably wrote it in Spanish because he wasn't fluent in English. Correct. He definitely wrote it in Spanish or Catalonian. And uh, all the secret information was written between the lines in invisible ink. Pujol saying in the secret message that he was thinking of relocating to Lake Windermere because he heard that there was a large number of troops stationed there. All information that he would have gotten in uh, newsreels or British guides to different things and in the map and seeing that there's a base and this, 
I'm just coming up with this stuff. Yes. Pujol also began making up other fake agents, a network, the network codenamed Arabelle. There were, however, several mistakes made, as he had never been to the UK. For instance, he claimed that one of his contacts in Glasgow would do anything for a liter of wine. He didn't know that the Scottish uh, preferred to drink scotch or beer, and that in the UK they didn't use the metric system. He also claimed that the Brits left London to Brighton to escape the heat, which anyone who's been to either of those places will know. There's no heat. <laughs> no heat, and you don't escape to Brighton yes. to escape the heat. Though Brighton is quite lovely. Brighton Beach. Don't know how the Brits go there to sunbathe, but... Uh, well, if it's sun, sun in Brighton, it's something in London. You can open your shirt up in Hyde Park and sit outside. Gradually, he sent more and more messages from Portugal, each one slowly revealing new information. Then, one of his messages, invented as always, said a convoy of five ships were leaving Liverpool for Malta at a certain date. Info that he claimed to have gotten from a sailor contact. Now, as it happened, this was close to the truth. A British convoy was genuinely leaving Liverpool for Malta. The date and the number of ships were wrong, but British intel intercepted the communication and were spooked that there was a German agent operating in England, doubly so when the Germans conducted aerial reconnaissance missions based on Pujol's projected route. And so, British intelligence launched a spy hunt. Well, this, this point is very interesting because what it tells us is two things. One, from the German perspective, the information was regarded important. It went straight to the right people through very specific channels. Eventually. Eventually, but it, it, it got there. Eventually, it was regarded and they considered it and they did move no, based it just, on it. No, it wasn't left and sent... Um, in the station and they waited for something. Right. It was sent immediately because it was regarded as important information. But the more interesting thing about it, in my point of view, is that even at that stage, the British were able to intercept information like that. So they weren't intercepting so, Pujol's letters. They were intercepting messages from the Germans saying that they had received information from they, their contact. They had information or they had capabilities. If they were SIGINT or WIRE or human information received from other agents or other means, I would say put more or less on the, in the, on the electronic SIGINT side of things, indicating that someone was reporting this sort of stuff. And that was, that's very interesting that they had that kind of information even in those stages. And it showed the, 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 the capability. Yeah. Obviously, when they were able to intercept that kind of information, they had to realize that, okay, there's a mole, there's someone who's reporting from England. So that was a very interesting point of view. So both sides were feeding from the same information. One was getting, sending it to its headquarters, and one was intercepting it and, and just trying to understand what the other side is thinking about what's going on. Essentially, to summarize, after a series of messages, the British understood that there was an agent, Alaric, who was sending information to the Germans presumably from the UK because it was UK-based information. Correct. They did have some question marks, though, based yes. on some of the information they received, but it was somewhat interesting. So, Pujol, hearing back from the Obver about his reports, received a message to give more detailed and weightier reports on troop sightings and movements. Pujol, disheartened and fearing that his messages were not as good or as consistent as he hoped, he felt that perhaps the whole farce was coming to an end. Meanwhile, the British were asking, who was this agent? Where was he getting his information from? They were going crazy. And you have to remember, this now is MI5, looking for a mole, right. looking for an agent who is revealing information coming from England. Yes. Not the MI6, looking to look Correct. outside. Correct. In fact, the MI5 set up a whole task force trying to find yes. us. The MI5 were very, very good at the time catching agents operating in Germany. Correct. And so there were hardly any, if at all, and so this was quite surprising when there was supposedly one operating. On February of 1942, fearing that the gig was up and that he had insufficient knowledge of the UK and of the military, Pujol tried a last-ditch effort. Pujol, or his wife Aratheli, accounts contradict, approached the American embassy in Lisbon after the Americans had recently joined the war post-Pearl Harbor. There, they had a stroke of luck and were ushered into the naval attaché's office. Now, this is already someone higher up, someone who can actually do yes. something. Pujol's story was told, all of his attempts to contact the British and his contact with the Germans, and the naval attaché was amazed. 
asking for proof, it was given, and Pujol's potential was recognized. The Americans then contacted British intelligence, who at the same time were narrowing their search to locate Pujol, remembering of a particular Spaniard who approached the British. It was good timing. Soon after, Pujol was given instructions by the British intelligence that he was to be taken to London. MI5 later said, Pujol was one wrong step from being caught. It seemed a miracle that he'd survived so long. Pujol agreeing, It was crazy. I had no idea what I was doing. There was one problem with getting to London, though. Travel data to and from Portugal was regularly sold off to the obver. If Pujol was discovered to be traveling to London when he was supposed to have already been living in the UK for the past nine months, that would pose a major problem. One that they'd have to solve. Interesting because it showed not only the ability of the Germans, but the ability of the British. The ability of the Germans was that they were able to get the list of people leaving from Portugal to England. So they had probably understood everything. It wasn't a computer those days. Everything was listed and, and mm -hmm. handwritten. Yeah. So they were able, because of the connections, to get this list so they knew who was leaving. But on the other hand, the British knew about that. Mm -hmm. So it was like a double thing. Yeah. You know, so they knew it. So how do they go about it? Do they want the Germans to continue have this list? And then they don't go to the Portuguese and say, hey, guys, you have a leak. It's going to the Germans. Stop it. Or the British would say, you know what? This is the leak. Maybe we'll use it or not use it for our own information. and We can see who's going because maybe they would get it from the Germans, actually, who's leaving or not going. I don't know what they thought and maybe something will come out of it. Maybe they could find other people that they needed. Who knows? The, the, it was interesting that they both sides were feeding off the same pool and understanding how important it is. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time, you could think, okay, you can get on a boat. Is it listed somewhere? I mean, I probably think it was more flights and not so much the, the shipping because shipping is much easier to get on without names and well, anything. Well, I mean, people smuggled shipping is much easier, sure, but I think there were still registers on official Yes, but I think the, what they were looking at is many of the people going on flights because it was like, it's not a long time to take a flight to from one place to another. I don't know how many commercial flights there were back then, but yeah. Not a lot, but you know, the KLM uh, pilot yeah, was flying KLM, yeah, yeah. Uh, at least a couple of times a week, maybe, or backwards yeah. and forwards. So there was a commercial line going between yeah. Lisbon and London. Yeah. So what made Pujol a bad candidate to be a spy? Wait, he's not a spy yet. Well, he is for the Germans. Yes. But now another thing is, did the Americans have to tell the British about him? Yes, they had no choice. They can't run him by themselves. So the, the Americans they realized, they okay. They didn't have the ground operations. And they didn't, and they, this is something that would interest the Brits. And therefore, there was no sense on keeping it for themselves. And they were working together with the British intelligence. So it was obvious to them that this is something that will interest the British uh, intelligence. Also, so Pujol probably was, said as much that he wanted to work with the British. Not yes, that, that although he did come to the, he came to the Americans not to go to the British. He came to the Americans. Because <laughs> he couldn't get to the, the British. British. He didn't say, I want to go to the British, help me, unless he did. Or he said, I want to work with you because I'm not able to work with the Brits. And then the Americans said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll get you in touch with the Brits. Well, and I think that's yeah. what happened. I think he thought the Brits won't, don't want him. And he said, okay, let's try and work with the Americans. Maybe we can do something. Maybe. But anyway, the thing is, the Americans went to the Brits and then the Brits the went to MI5. But it's also the same thing of what you were saying before. Maybe the Americans were doubting this guy could be a mole, so they contacted the Brits. What do you know about this guy, if anything? Of course. There's that and too. And if the information is correct and if right. it's interesting and, and everything about it. And then, of course, the Americans asked to see proof and they saw proof. And now they wanted The letters to and the secret codes, yeah. Right. And now the Americans want to verify if actually... It is, they did, if this is what information they were about. Mm -hmm. So that's the next thing. Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons why he was also able to get in touch with the Americans is because they just joined the war. So it was, right. it was new. And so, so they never had new assets. Things they was, didn't have probably too many assets yeah, as well. Exactly. So that's why yeah. the naval attache was able to be, you know, meeting and all that kind of stuff. Whereas the Brits and the Germans were more entrenched. And so it was a different situation on that. What made him a great candidate now? Now he was a proven candidate. Now he, he, he look, for MI6, he, he had nothing to offer, you could say. He's not giving information about Germany. Right. Okay? At this stage. Mm -hmm. And after they did a twist, but he didn't give information. Yeah, to, no, the Germans weren't telling him things. No, he didn't know he about German nothing, troop nothing. movements. No. He, there was nothing that was intelligence that they could use. So the SOE, MI6 later, had nothing no, to do with uh, him. The, for them, it, it, it was interesting, but... 
what, what, it wasn't something that they could use. Mm-hmm. They're going to send him to Berlin now. Now, for, for the British point of view, they had to make a decision what to do with him. And then probably we'll hear a little bit later about what, what they thought they could do and what they decided to do. Yeah, we'll hear that in the next episode. Or, or to stop it because they're, they're, he's, he's actually doing damage. Yeah. But they were clever enough, as we will see later, to realize that this is actually something they could use in their advantage. And this is where the genius of, of what happened. So what, were, what was the difference between British and German intelligence at the time? Why did he have more success with the German embassy and not the British? The Germans wanted to have information about England and they needed assets in England. He was able to say he can do that. So he went to the right people with, with the, the intelligence. Right information. To go to the British, the British didn't say to him, okay, why don't you go now and open a, go and, and, and open a chicken farm in, chicken farm in Berlin. What are they going to do? What are they going to achieve? How many omelets does he make for certain people? That's not what the that's not the level of information they need. Mm-hmm. So, for the, for them, and of course, you have to remember one something very important. He was selling lies or stories to the Germans that were not true. Right. So they were feeding off his stories about his capability of doing things that basically he had no capability. Yeah, it was not real. Right. I mean, he equally he could the, have come to the British and said. But Whatever. he didn't. Right. But he didn't. He didn't come and say to the British, I can bring you this or that or this. He said, I want to work for you. So right. what can you do? He didn't say, I have these friends and connections. Well, it goes to what I said. He had a very strong moral compass in a yes. sense that he was an absolute liar, absolute liar. But he only lied to the right people. <laughs> or Not the wrong right. no, people. You know no, what I mean? Well, no, uh, I mean, later yeah. we'll find different things. But 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 the point is... He noticed... He, I wouldn't say a lie. He knew to sell... A st- a story, a story. Yeah. that was good, for, advantageous for his uh, objects. He was charming, and he lied. And he was lying. Yes. What would you characterize today as uh, a difference between the British or the German intelligence of how they operate? I don't want to go into it. It's too personal. It's different. But they do operate differently. Completely. And you would say different nations operate their intelligence organizations. Their culture, and it's different. Inherently, would you say the Germans would be more approachable for that kind of thing? I don't insult either intelligence organizations. Each one has his own way of doing things. One is more of a global player. One is more of a local player. Each one has his own ways of making things happen. Some are easier. Some are more strict. Let's leave it at that. Some have been penetrated more than others, so they have to take other precautions. Some external services are better than others. It's it's a different story. Fair enough. What would you say Pujol's greatest risks were at this time? Risks? Yes. Being found out that he has nothing to sell. That is a con, a con man who actually is playing one against the other. And the Germans would have killed him, probably. Mm. The Brits could have put him in jail because he was sabotaging the war effort. Because he was actually giving information that was false, that who know it was false or not, and he could have said something that was true, and it could be problematic. And he was working with a foreign agency. So, from from the British point of view, if you come to England, you're not something that's welcomed. From the German point of view, so they would have said he, they could have said, uh, okay, he told them a whole lot of bullshit, and uh, asked to get the money back. And uh, proof of receipts of the stuff he did. He never had receipts to show, did, did he? No, he showed the... the he said uh, he didn't ever had any receipts because he never, got, never went anywhere. Fake receipts. Fake receipts. And he could have made the fake receipts if he wanted to. So the Germans would have been upset and annoyed. But I think the handlers wouldn't have wanted to shown themselves to be idiots. Mm-hmm. Because then your reputation is online. Chain. And it went all the way up to the top already of having this great asset, probably boosted their careers, boosted their ego. It wasn't in their advantage to find out that he was fake. So the more successful he became and the more his reporting went higher, it became more difficult to actually question him and look into his reporting because you don't want to find out that it's not true. So all the real... And there was no polygraph in those days, so both mm-hmm. sides couldn't really probably do a, a polygraph test. So if you look at it, for the more successful he became, the more stronger he became in not being caught by any of the sides. 
especially by the Germans. They had no interest to to show that he was they were conned by someone who had no qualifications. He wasn't even sent by someone. So it was an interesting game. As Pujol departed Portugal for England, he had the following thoughts. I had to trust that the British would indeed get me to London, but did not know how, when, or in what capacity I would travel there, and couldn't help wondering what treatment the British would have in store for me on arrival. And on the next episode, we'll find out. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening. And remember, don't count your chickens before they hatch. Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production with original scoring and mastering by Julian Dussault. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you listen from. It really does help. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, drop us a message and we'll do our best to get back to you. Until next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.